So um, speaking of my dad, when we moved up here, he bought this apartment complex in town. It's an eight unit, two stories. And one of the units in the second floor, something happened where the toilet got a little bit of a crack in it. So it wasn't leaking really when it wasn't in use. It would leak when it flushed. And it wasn't like the pure water that hangs out in the tub or the tank. It was the nasty water. And that would kind of come out. And so my dad's a hardworking guy. Uh, he would prefer not to have another person come out and fix things that he can fix. So he just tells the people, hey, call me. Just let me know when there's stuff that's got to be handled, fixed. I'll come out and I'll handle it. They, they figured, well, I know how to fix this problem. So they grabbed a towel and they put it around the bottom of the toilet and it's fine. You know, the water is in the towel. That's what I do when I get out of the shower. It's fixed. Done. Right. So they did that. And when it would get really wet, they would go and exchange it for another or just put another towel on it and call it good. So that happened for a while. And what happened is the water got underneath the linoleum and then it started to come out on the other side of the bathroom onto the carpet. So they go, okay, that's pretty bad. Lucky, I already know how to do this. We'll put a towel on it. So that's what they did, they put a towel on it and just keep putting towels on it. And my dad didn't find out until the neighbor was like, hey, we're seeing some like water damage on the drywall and like the neighboring unit. And it's like coming through the kitchen and the kitchen floor is wet. And my dad's like, where is this coming from? And it was the neighbor's nasty, leaky toilet. Disgusting, right? That's a little problem, right? Wouldn't that have been months ago, just a tiny little simple fix to just take the toilet out and get another toilet in there? But now because it has been left and it's been allowed to grow and become something really gnarly, it's now a much bigger project. And now it's, it's, it's causing people that you got to get moved out for a little bit while I get this fixed. It's going to upset people. It's a whole ordeal because something that was relatively small and manageable before is now completely out of control. That's pretty much the chapter we're reading today. It's something that was pretty nasty before is now completely out of control and no one fixed it ahead of time. And now it's got to be fixed right now. That's the chapter that we're looking at. Something very small became something really gnarly. And here's what's great about this chapter. We're going to be in Judges chapter four. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there. Judges chapter four really shows you something about who God is and what he wants from people. What I love about this chapter is it shows us that God wants to use not only every man, but also every woman and every child in moving his plan forward. And here's what's great about our God. His plan is not about having a really rad building that puts on killer events and has an awesome Sunday and a Wednesday service. That's not God's, like, what his pinnacle plan is. Jesus' plan is world domination. And that's what Jesus wants. And he's not going to settle for anything less. Jesus wants people who are engaged in the community, engaged in their workplace, with their neighbors, with their relatives, with their friends, pushing the kingdom forward. And God doesn't care your experience level, who you are, what you know, what you don't know. He just wants people who will say, okay, I'm in. And what you'll see tonight is really two ends of the spectrum. You'll see someone who's a prophet, who speaks to God, and someone who's a housewife, who probably feels far from God, given the experiences that we're going to look into. So you have those two spectrums, and God uses both of them mightily. So that's the chapter, bless you, that's the chapter we're in today. Let's go to Judges chapter 4. 
And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh after Ehud died. So the chapter starts reminding you and I of this cycle that keeps happening. So Joshua ends and there's peace. The people are able to relax and it's calm. And then there's this cycle that will occur over and over and over again where the people sin and people turn away from God. They start worshiping other gods. They, they look at the Canaanites and say, man, don't they have rad stuff? I want to be like them. And they become just like those people. And God says, fine, enjoy being a Canaanite. Enjoy their gods, enjoy their practices because it's going to hurt you. And then while they're in that sin and they're in that oppression, God will have grace on his people and he'll deliver them. And then after the deliverer comes, there'll be peace for a season and then there will be sin. And this cycle is going to continue over and over again to the point where you and I are like, okay, guys, seriously, like for real, we're doing this again. It's amazing because you see again, the people that was evil in the sight of Yahweh again, you see in chapter three at verse seven, at verse 12, you see it here at the beginning of chapter four, you see it again at chapter six. It's just the people of Israel again done messed up. Like that's the just pattern that keeps happening and God keeps sending a deliverer. And here was so rad about it. I love the way it's phrased. God's sight is still on his people. It's not at some point where God goes, you know what? I can't even look at you anymore. I'm just done with you guys. You've messed up over and over again. You keep making the same mistake. I'm through with it. I'm sorry, you're out. Our God never does that. Jesus puts it so well. It's so well illustrated in his parable of the prodigal son where you have a, a boy who's with his dad and he says, hey, you know, I would really like to have my inheritance now. And the way I've always looked at that is it's like, well, okay, dad probably has a lot of money. You know, he wants to go on a vacation. So he's like, hey, give me some of my share. I'm going to go party and have fun. And, and then I'll come back. That's not what he's saying. Like, when do you get an inheritance? When dad is dead. What this son is saying is, hey, dad, I want your stuff. I don't want you. In fact, it would be better for me and my plans if you were dead. That's the, the boy that we're given insight to in Jesus's lesson. And that boy runs off, parties, does all the sinful things, becomes oppressed, is now in a spot where he doesn't want to be. And he's sitting there contemplating going, you know what? I really messed up. And every reader and every listener is like, yeah, good. Like you deserve it, dude. Are you kidding me? And he goes, I'm going to go back to my dad and I'm going to beg him. You know, maybe my dad will let me back in. And maybe, maybe I can never be a son again, but maybe he let me in as a servant. And as he approaches, what we see is the dad, his eyes were always looking for his son. And the moment that his son decides to come home, the dad rushes to him and runs after him and gives him all of his best stuff at the cost of himself, gives him his jacket, gives him his ring. They kill the fatted calf. They have a party because the son who was dead is now alive. He's returned. That's, that's everybody's story. This is the story as we read the Israelites who go, are you kidding me? We're so lucky that we have a God who, even in the midst of our bad choices, the times we run off, the time we go completely off the rails, his eyes are still on us and he's eagerly waiting for us to go, okay, okay dad, I want to come home. I don't want to do this anymore. I want to be freed from the stuff that's happening in my life. And so the Israelites, they sin. And there's this, here's the leaky toilet. His name is Jabin, verse two. And Yahweh sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoyim. So here's this guy, 
named Jabin. He shows up in Joshua chapter 11. So it's Jabin, the king of Hazor, is how Joshua chapter 11 talks of him. And maybe kings are just really, um, they're bad at names. You know, like there's Herod and there's Herod. And then he had a son whose name was Herod. And then there was Jeff and then Herod. You know, like they kind of just, they're bad at names. Like maybe that's it. Maybe it's the same guy. I don't know. But what we do know is in Joshua chapter 11, there's a Jabin who is the king of a place called Hazor. He's the leaky toilet that's been left all alone and his nastiness has spread and he's now oppressed the Israelites and now he's the king who reigns at Hazor, but he's the king of Cana. He's now become the dude in charge and he's become very powerful and he's accrued this massive army, the general of which his name is Sisera. And now because the leaky toilet didn't get fixed, it's someone else's big problem. Verse three, the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. So the problem that the author's trying to get you to see is this is an incredible force. So Israel's in the Bronze Age. That's what they've learned how to master and use is bronze tools, bronze weapons. Jabin's in the Iron Age. The dude has the most advanced military systems at the time, and he's got 900 chariots of armor. What the picture they're trying to give us is Israel's a group of guys with a bunch of muskets, and Jabin's a dude with full-on tanks. Like, it's probably better where Israel's a bunch of dudes with bows and arrows, right? That's more of the, what we're supposed to see here. And they're, it's trying to get you, and I go, yeah, how in the world is Israel going to ever overcome these these technologically advanced groups. And here's what they do. They cry out to God because they don't like their oppression. And what does God do? God responds. God is, is going to be working out a plan that we're going to see throughout the rest of this chapter. And as I was reading this, I just go, man, I really hope that for me, because it happens to all of us, when I fall into stuff and I, I choose to allow a little bit of a leaky toilet to be in my house, and it spreads, and it starts to hurt me, and it hurts my family, I hope it doesn't take me 20 years to cry out to God and get help. I hope it doesn't become that, where my kids are always like, yeah, man, my dad always had that problem. And he just ignored it. He just kept throwing towels on it and was like, yeah, it'll be fine, and it wasn't fine. 20 years they were dealing with this, and if Israel had just cried out to God, they would have handled it. I grew up in San Diego and my dad always would talk to us whenever we'd go into the ocean. Because if you got caught in an undertow, it could get scary real quick. You're pulled out into the water and you have to swim sideways until it let go of you. And sometimes the currents are really subtle and they just kind of grab you. And I remember one time I was young, I'm out in the ocean and I hear my mom yelling for me and I look and she's like super far that way. And I was like, oh, I thought she was right in front of me. It was really subtle, and the current just took me and pulled me away, and that's what's happened with the Israelites, and that's what happens with sin. We let a little bit of it in our house, and all of a sudden, it pulls us, and it pulls us, and it pulls us, and then when you, by the time you go, oh my gosh, where did I start? You're like, I'm miles away from where I was, miles away from where I should be. What's so great about our God is he shows us over and over again, especially in Judges, if you just cry out to him, he's faithful to respond He's faithful to help. And here's what's so amazing. If you look in verse chapter four, that's like God was just waiting the whole time. He's already prepared a plan. He's already got a, a deliverer in place. The stage is set and God's ready to move. Now, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife 
of Lapidoth was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinam from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. So this is the judge. She's a girl, she's a prophetess, and she sends for this guy named Brock, and he's like the dude. And when she calls him to come forward, he's the commander of the Lord's army at the time, she asks him this question. She goes, hey, didn't God tell you to go get guys, 10,000 of them from these two tribes, because he's got something planned for you? To me, this kind of reads like this. When I get my kids settled in the morning and I say, hey guys, I want you to clean your room by the time I get home. And then I go to work and then I come home and they're on the couch where I left them and I go check their room and the room is still messy. And then I come out and I have to ask them a question because maybe I'm a crazy person. Didn't I ask you to clean your room? Have you guys ever asked that question to your kids? Where you almost, you think maybe I am insane. Like, didn't I ask you to do that? That's kind of the tone of this. Like, hey, didn't you know exactly what you are supposed to be doing right now? And then get this, it's even better. He says, the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, verse seven, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river of Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. God does not give him this vague plan like he does with Gideon, where he's like, hey, go grab some guys and you're gonna defeat this army. Oh, okay. No, God gives him an itinerary. God's like, you're going to grab these people from this place. Here's the number I want. Here's the river you're going to meet at. Then I'm going to bring the baddies to you. And then you're just going to go for it. Like God gives him an itinerary and he's going, yeah, I don't know if that's from the Lord. Like, are you kidding me right now? Like God has handed it to him. This is exactly what you are supposed to be doing. This is the, oh my gosh, it's just amazing to read. Like if God were to hand us his plans would we be in that same boat where we go, I don't know, I don't know, because he's, he's really scared. Here's what we read, verse eight. So Barak says to her, this is his response. If you go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. This is the same exact thing that happened in Judges chapter one with Judah, where God says, hey, Judah, I've given them into your hand. And he goes, hey, Simeon, why don't you come with me? Because I'm just, I don't know if this is going to work out. I don't know if I could really trust God. They're super fearful. And Barak is looking at, I mean, he's, he's told to get 10,000 soldiers. And he comes up to a woman who's chilling under a palm tree. And he's like, yeah, but if you're with me, it'll be fine. Really? Like, isn't God and his super meticulous plan good enough for you? It's, it's amazing. And it, the number one thing, that God tells you and me, the number one command in his Bible, in his word for us, is to not be afraid. God says, do not fear more than anything over and over and over again because God's in control. God doesn't want us to fear because he's in control. He's got it. He's demonstrated to Barak, hey, I've got this figured out. I know what we're gonna do. And I think a lot of the reasons why we fear, there's two of them that I was thinking through is one, I think we're afraid that maybe God doesn't have our back. Like maybe God isn't caring for me as much, I think. And maybe God doesn't 
isn't hoping that I win and, and maybe God's gonna let me down. And so I was on Twitter and um, I don't have an account, but I like to just lurk and read, you know, because I don't like to post things. And there's this really famous atheist and he posted a tweet. It was like a multi-page one. And he said, Christians believe this. And when a large atheist starts a tweet like that, you're like, I got to read it. You know, maybe he's right. Maybe he's wrong. Here's what he said. Christians believe this, that their God created the world 65 million years ago created the dinosaurs, created infinite number of galaxies, is constantly expanding the universe, that he meticulously formed the atoms that hold everything together and the laws and the rules that govern all of them, but he wants a personal relationship with you. And I was looking for a following tweet because I was like, oh, that's the punchline. Because yeah, I do believe that. Like this thing that is, in his case, he thinks it's wisdom is foolishness to the believer. Like you look at it and you go, oh no, that is what I believe. Like Jesus straight up says that the kingdom of God is like this, that a man is walking through a field and he sees a treasure. This is the best treasure he could ever imagine. This is so important to him, so valuable to him that he decides, okay, I'm gonna go home. I'm gonna sell everything that I have. I'm gonna give up everything so that I can have this treasure. And then he does. He goes home, gives up everything, purchases this treasure to have it. And Jesus tells you and me, that treasure is you and me. And Jesus follows through on that. You know, Jesus was lacking nothing before he made you and me. Jesus was completely self-sufficient and totally okay and totally more than okay being just God, God the Father and God the Spirit all together in just perfect love and unity. And then they decided, you know what? Let's create beings so that we that, that can also experience this love and experience this who we are together. They'll partner with us. He didn't need to just kind of wanted to, and then he did. And then once he did so, loved us so much that when we turned away from him, he said, you know what? I would give up the comforts of heaven. I'd give up everything to go be born as a little baby to a family of messed up reputation, to serve people, to work as a carpenter, get calluses on my hands, stub my finger with a hammer, to work really, really hard, be tempted in every single way, and then ultimately to die, to lose my own life if it meant that I could have these people forever. Dude, that's what God tells us. So where the atheist is like, huh, checkmate, I'm reading that going, yeah, you're right. That's 100% what I believe. And the Bible tells us that yours and my guarantee that God is gonna come through for you and me is that he gave his son for you and me. That Timothy, Paul says that that's your deposit. Jesus's life is your deposit. That God bought you with that and that he's only got more and more in store for you and me. That, yeah, God really is invested in you and me infinitely more than we could ever imagine. So if the question is, is God going to come through for me? Oh, heck yeah. The second one is, I think, that can make us fearful is, well, it's not God, it's me. I don't have enough. I don't know enough. I'm insufficient. I'm not strong enough. I don't know enough things. Are you, not me, are you kidding me? I was doing a, I do a, a little Devo with some of our youth leaders on Tuesdays and we were doing where Jesus feeds the 5,000. I mean, in this room right now is a thousand chairs. So multiply that by five, that's the men who were present. Men tend to bring with them their wives. And then when men have their wives, they tend to have to bring their kids, right? I took my daughter on a trip and as we were leaving, men just pack different than women. And as I was leaving for this trip, my wife calls me, luckily before I had gotten out of range of Walmart, and she says, hey, did you pack your toothbrush? No, I didn't pack my toothbrush. So I turned, it goes, okay, did you get your deodorant? No. Okay, did you get your um, sleeping bag? Yes. 
okay, cool. Did you grab your pillow? No. Like, that's just how I pack. My wife, though, will never let the kids be hungry or uncomfortable. So when we go to the coast, like, we have every A, B, C, D, and every contingency plan packed for these kids, right? There's probably a lot of women who have done that in this place. So now there's 5,000 men. There's all of these moms and all of these kids. I really have a hard time believing that the only food present was the five loaves and the two fish. But there's one family who said, you know, I bet you Jesus can do something with this. The other families were like, hey, do not let him, do not let our boy go and talk to Andrew and offer our food because you're going to make us look like dorks. Okay. That's not enough. Don't do that. But there's one family who said, you know what? One little boy who goes, this is all I have. Maybe Jesus can do something with it. And not only does Jesus multiply it and do something with it, but for every person who passed out baskets to help, there were 12 baskets full left over. Every person who helped had an entire basket full left over because that's what our God can do. God didn't need the fish and the loaves, but God wanted someone to say, hey, I'm willing to partner with you, Jesus. Not because of his age, not because of his experience, not because of what he's been through, what you learned, just someone who in faith would say, hey, God, I'll be a part of what you're doing. That's where our God wants. Our God desperately wants to partner with his people. Verse nine. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For Yahweh will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels and Deborah went up with him. The author takes extra care to let us know Deborah's coming too. Barak is, is losing his chance at glory because he wasn't going to believe God was going to handle it. And so Deborah's coming with. And so the stage is set. Here's the scenario. 900 chariots of iron is the army that they're about to face. He's got 10,000 men. They're coming together. There's going to be a clash. Like they're just setting the stage. All the characters, we know them. We've been introduced to them. We're ready to go. And then the next verse happens. Verse 11 says, Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kadesh. Okay. Uh, boring. You know, like, why, why would you throw that in? It's so, like, uninteresting. It's so minor. It's, why? In chapter one, we're introduced to these people that these people settled in Israel in the south. It's verse 16 of chapter one. You get Moses' father-in-law and his descendants. They settle in the south. Well, the reason that gives us the location here is because something's happened where relationships haven't turned out right, and this dude separates from the rest of the Israelites, and he moves north, and he's going on his way, and he ends up building relationships with Jabin, and, and they're working together. They're doing trade together, whatever. You know, they're, they've gone. They're doing their own thing. It's this strange little detail in the middle of this crazy chapter. And here's something I love about it that it kind of reminds me of. That it just, it, it, it tells me that Heber, the, the man, his U-Haul, which got him from the south to the north, even that was God's plan. 
that God was directing even this dude to come up there so that his plan would be completed, that he would have someone to handle it. And so maybe you're someone who feels like, you know what? I've just, I've blown relationships. Like I'm, I'm just in a bad spot right now. This isn't where I'm supposed to be. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I don't know. I'm not loving where I'm at. Or maybe you're someone who feels like, you know what? Nothing's going on with me. My life is boring. I just feel like I'm waiting for something to happen. Maybe God has you right where he wants you and is preparing you to be a part of his plan. And you and me, when we're in that spot, what we're called to do is to be ready in season and out of season, that we're prepared for when God works his plan out, when he has his plan come into fruition and we're to be involved in it, we'd say, okay, I'm in, I'm ready, here we go. That we'd be willing and excited to jump in because he wants to use you. He wants us to be prepared. And then verse 12, here's the battle scene. Here we go. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Herosheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. So this is the thing they feared. This is not just every single one of the chariots he had. It tells us he had 900. He's bringing out 900. It's also all of the men. So this is the army. He's bringing everybody. It jumped right from the Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Rings, to the end of the two towers. You know what I mean? Like all of the baddies are there. And here we go. That's the picture that's been painted. And here's what happens. And Deborah said to Barak, up, for this is the day in which Yahweh has given Sisera into your hand. Does not Yahweh go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And verse 15, you got to pay attention. And Yahweh routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. There's 10,000 men with Barak. Who actually won the battle? God did. That God is the one who actually won the battle. And we don't really get the details of it until chapter five, which is gonna be covered next week. But what chapter five tells us is that the area in which this battle took place was a lot like Grandview Lane and Grandview Avenue. You know that little place in town, that little bottom of the valley? I've built quite a few fences in that area. And here's what happens. If you take a shovel and you stick it and you pull out two inches of sand, in about two minutes, that's gonna fill with water. There's a lot of water going in this valley. And then this valley where the battle took place is a lot like that. There's a lot of water underneath. And for me, my experience was a 2004 Ford Taurus. Doesn't really handle that very well when it starts to rain. You know what I mean? Now there's water on top and water on bottom, and now you're stuck. What happens is God, what the next chapter is going to tell us, it starts sending rain. Right as the battle begins, God just lets it pour down rain. And now all these 900 chariots, they don't mean anything. In fact, they're more of a hindrance than they are helpful. And the people are completely, utterly defeated. The chariots, which they thought is, this is the thing that's scary. This is what's going to allow us to win, is actually their disadvantage. And so verse 16 says, And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Hereshith and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. God gave them all of it. The thing that we're, they were afraid of, and I just don't know if, if I can go down there by myself. I really need someone else to go with me in this. 
God goes, no, I've got it actually. Like I told you the plan. Now that you've obeyed the plan, you get to see it handled. Just, just follow me. Just walk in faith with me and you'll see it happen. God's got it handled. God's got it under control. In verse 17, but Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. This is the guy from the unimportant verse, verse 11, the one that's just kind of random, kind of like, why is this here? That's Heber. His wife is Jael. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. So now this general, he's running, trying to find a place to hide. Barak doesn't get to kill him because he forfeited glory when he said, you know what, I just can't trust the Lord. And so God said, okay, I'm going to give him, I'm going to give glory to a woman then. In verse 18, and Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, turn aside, my Lord, turn aside to me. Don't be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, please give me a little water to drink for I'm thirsty. So she opened up a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. This dude who was unstoppable, this guy who had the army, who no one could touch, totally powerful, is now begging for water. The bare minimum requirement of survival. He's now begging, please give me some water. How quickly can our circumstances change? You know, if you're someone who believes, you know, it's my career, my relationships, or my kids, or my friends, these are the things that make me secure. These are the things that make me who I am. They make me happy. They make, they're my foundation. They're my everything. Then Jesus says, you're like the person who builds his house on sand. And one day there's going to be water that comes up, just like what happened in our story. And then everything's going to be rocked and you're going to be left going, oh my gosh, everything is falling apart. I need help. Things aren't going well. But if instead your foundation is Jesus, if instead the rock that you stand on is Jesus, then you're able to take disappointments from every other direction because you know, my God's never going to fail me. And water can come from below. Water can come from above. Jesus is still going to be there. He's still going to come through for you. He's still worthy to be trusted. He's never going to let you down. He's never going to forsake you. He's always there present with you. If you build your life on anything else, when the water comes, you're going to be shaken and you're going to end up like Sisera going, everything is falling apart. This isn't working. Verse 20, and he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent. And if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here, say no. What we learn about Sisera in the next chapter is this is a nasty man. This is a bad guy. He's, he's a leaky toilet too. Like he's the, all the damage from the leaky toilet. And he, just like all of our sin, can play out in this exact same way. Sin somehow comes into our house. We got nasty stuff in our house. And we can be like Jael, we cover it with a rug and, we, sit, and we, we put it there and it will say to you and me, the sin that enters our house, hey, don't tell anyone about this. Don't let anyone know that I'm here. Like it's somehow in control of you. Sisera has zero power here. You realize that? He's got nobody. He's got nothing. He's in the house and he's telling her, don't you tell anyone I'm here. Our sin does that same thing. It thinks it still has a hold on us, like it's in charge and maybe it says, well, you're too ashamed to let people know. You're too ashamed to get help. 
Think, what will people think of you? What will people say about you if you go and you, you, you expose this thing? And what happens is if you leave it in your home under the rug or under a towel, it's gonna spread. It's gonna end up going under the linoleum into the carpet of the hallway. And it's gonna end up in your neighbor's house. And it's gonna affect your kids. And it's gonna affect the way you do daily life. And then all of a sudden, it's gonna become something that should have never been. If she, Jael, decides, you know what? I just, I just can't, I can't handle this Jabin thing. I'm just gonna let it be. He's gonna wake up refreshed and it's gonna be something she can't handle. But right now she's at a crossroads and she's got the opportunity to make a decision not only for her, but for her family. How do I, how do I deal with nasty stuff coming into my home? And here's what she does. And here's something you gotta know about these, these Kenite women. Um, my brother was going into a hotel I think this was in Hawaii and he sees this Asian couple coming up. And so he goes and he opens the door for them. And the husband goes, no, no, no. She's strong like bull. And so my brother goes, okay, and closes it. And the woman opens the door for the man to walk through. And my brother's like, weird. Okay. But that's like honor for that couple. Like that was very honoring for the woman to do that for the man. In this community for these women, their job was to handle the tents. That whenever they moved, whenever they packed up, they erected the tents. They packed them up, they brought them, they carried them, they set them up, and they built them. She's strong like bull, okay? So she not only knows how to use all the tools, but she's very, very experienced and versed with them. It's important to note for what happens next. Verse 21. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was laying fast asleep from weariness. Then like the best sentence in the whole chapter. So he died, you think. (laughs) Like, it's not like she went tink, tink there. No, she's like, bang, bang, bang. And she handles it. She's decided, you know what? I don't do nasty stuff in my house. And then here's what happens next. It's so funny to me. Verse 22. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, come and I will show you the man who you are seeking. So he went into her tent and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. Here's what I think. I think Jael had made a choice a long, long time before Sisera came to town that she wasn't going to have nasty stuff in her house. And what we learned from chapter five is Sisera's was really, really nasty stuff. And the way that she talks to Barak is kind of funny because the only way, reason that this Sisera is in her tent is because he wasn't obedient to the Lord, right? She kind of talks to Barak like it's her kid and she just found nasty stuff that belonged to him in her home, right? Hey, come here. Let me show you the guy you're looking for. Why is that man on my floor? I can just imagine what Brock is saying. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not exactly sure what happened here. That's not how I last saw him. You know, like, it's like a mom going, hey, can you explain to me what this is on your phone? Hey, can you show me what's on the computer? I'd, I've never seen this herb grow in our garden. What's in this bag? You know, like, it's like a mom saying, hey, what's this nastiness in our home? She's not, she's not putting up with it. She had decided that she was going to be like God's people who, op- who operate fundamentally differently from the Canaanites. 
that their lives are not similar. Their lives are completely separate and different. And while she can't control the things that are going on outside of her tent, she can say, as for me and my home, yeah, we, see, we serve the Lord. We don't do nasty stuff in my house. That stuff can stay out there. But in my place, nah. And do you think she's serious about it? Dude, she's deathly serious about it. She's not fearful about how to handle it. She does it in courage. And she goes, yeah, this doesn't happen here tonight. This isn't what we're going to do. She's deathly serious about it. And honestly, if we're people who let nastiness stay in our home, let the leaky toilet be, for a little bit, it doesn't seem like a big deal. You can cover it with a rug. You can hide it for a little bit. But that will spread and that will permeate and it will affect your kids and it will be subtle at first. It won't seem like a big deal. And then there'll come to a point where you're like, I, I, don't, I don't think I can overcome it. It's now become 900 chariots of iron. It's now, it, it's an insurmountable enemy. I, I don't know what to do anymore. Luckily for us, if you're in that spot, Jesus shows that he's faithful. If we cry out to him, he'll help us. And sometimes it means going to your neighbor and saying, hey, Naphtali, hey, hey, neighboring tribes, I need 10,000 men. I need some men to come into my home and fix this. I need, I need some friends to come together and, and help me fix what's going on because this, this is messed up. There's some nasty stuff in my home. The last verse is so brilliant of this chapter. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. Who subdued? God. Who subdued? God. That's right. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. You guys, this is yours and my story right there. That the battle is already finished. That God subdued the bad king. That God handled it. When Jesus was on the cross, he doesn't go, it's three-fourths done. No. Jesus doesn't go, almost. No, Jesus goes, it's finished. This battle, it's done right now. The war, it's locked in. It's set in stone. It's done. But for years and years and years, just like in World War II, where everyone say the Battle of Normandy is when the battle was won, the war was won, there was years and years of pushing back darkness and fighting the enemy still. You and I are to be like the Israelites. God handled Jabin. And you and I, we press harder and harder. We, you and I are called to leave here, not going, wow, that was neat. Did you have fun playing on the slide? No, our job is to leave here going, okay, I'm going to push back against darkness. I'm going to press harder and harder against the enemy until he's completely subdued. And we do that until God finally says, well done, good and faithful servant. And we see the enemy cast into a lake of fire. That's when you get to be done. That's what we're called to do. Until then, we're called to fix the leaky toilets. We're called to say, you know what? Nasty stuff doesn't enter into my home because what's going to happen if you do that is your house is going to be a safe place for your kids. And when your kids have friends over, they're going to see that there's a spirit there that they don't have at their home and they're going to desire that. And it's a, it's a city on a hill that can't be hidden. It's something that's unique to this world because it's fundamentally different than the, than the lives that the Canaanites live. 
It's fundamentally different than the lives that anyone else lives. When you say, you know what? We don't do these things in my home. We don't say these things in my home. Not because it makes God love me more, but because God already gave everything for me, that I know who my God is. I can trust that my God is in control because I know he gave everything for me. And it's largely due to my insufficiencies that I can say, great God, I'm, I'm happy to hand all this over to you. I'm happy to see what you will do with it. So guys, if you have nasty stuff in your home right now, and you can't handle it by yourself. Grab a pastor here. Grab a neighbor here. Talk to someone who's invested into your life. If you have nasty stuff in your home that started off as it's just small and it's still under the rug, handle it. Be deathly serious about it. Grab a tent peg and go after it. And notice the experience level of the woman who does it. She's, she's just a stay-at-home mom. It's not like she had to go through years of seminary or, or get all this understanding or counsel. It was, that's nasty. I know how to deal with that. That's out of here. That's who we're called to be. So today, let's leave here as being people who know that God has won the victory and we're called to push back darkness starting in our home and then that permeates into our lives through our communities, our relationships, our work, our work relationships. It, it permeates through everything. And we can do that in faith, full of courage, knowing that God's in control. God loves me. God's got a plan for me. And it doesn't matter if I'm insufficient. I can give up my five loaves and my two fish because God is good. Amen? So Jesus, we thank you so much that you are a good God. We're so thankful that you don't give up on us when we allow the cycle of sin to oppress us and overtake us over and over and over again because it's so subtle. But your eyes are always on us. Lord, help us to be people who are full of courage, that we take heart and we know that our God loves us so much that he would die for us. And if you would even give your own son, son for us, you're not gonna withhold any good thing from us. Lord, help us to trust you in that. Help us to be courageous when we clean house of the nasty things that do not belong there. Help us to be courageous as we continue to press against the enemy and push back darkness and move this community towards more and more what your kingdom looks like. Lord, help Grant's Pass as a whole to become a city on a hill where the people just operate differently because your people are so on fire about you. So we love you, Lord, and we're excited to see what you do in this season. It's in your name we pray, amen. Amen, God bless you guys.